Hey, you're listening to the Seven Hills Church Podcast. If you want to learn more about the church, including upcoming service times in both our Cincinnati, Ohio, and Florence, Kentucky locations, visit us online at sevenhillschurch.tv. We hope this message helps you win the day. So grateful to be a part with you. And hey, we're going to jump right on in. Uh, we're going to uh, have some fun today a little bit. But um, how many of y'all got some fears in life? And fears, okay, all you don't, not raising your hands. Anderson, you can raise your hands. You're liars. That's okay. <laughs> Personally, I have an incredibly bad fear of heights. Like, I hate it. Like, I'm 25 years old, and the drop tower at Kings Island terrifies me. Like, I won't do it. I hate it. Even on Diamondback, I'm like closing my eyes just till we get over the first hill. It's horrifying. I hate it. Um, that's called uh, acrophobia, fear of heights. Anybody else relate fear of heights? Yeah, there we go. We got some. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this is correct because I got off Google, but terramarahanophobia. There we go. Someone smarter can pronounce that better. That's the fear of flying. Anybody afraid of flying? You're like on the airplane. You're like gripping the armrest. We're going down. No, it said you're okay. I always heard good advice is to look to somebody who's flown a while, and if they're not panicking, you're okay. Uh, my first flight ever was an international missions trip to Peru, so it was like six hours on my first ever plane, and I was terrified, but I was told, hey, just look to somebody, okay? And I remember I was sitting next to Pastor Kyle, and he had flown a lot, and, and I look over at one point, point in time, and there's turbulence freaking out. The stewardess fell to the ground. Everybody's screaming, and I'm like, it's okay, because you just look to someone who's flown, and I look over, and Pastor Kyle's gripping the seat. I'm like, oh, no! We're going down. So fear of flying. There you go. Claustrophobia, fear of small spaces. Anybody? Yes, yes. Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Savannah's job is to clean up the spiders in our house. I'm like, I love you, but no, not doing that. Entomophobia, fear of insects, just creepy crawlies, bugs. Aphidiophobia, fear of snakes. Yeah, fear of snakes. Oh, horrible little nasty little things, but... There's so many different fears that I think that everybody deals with, but there is one fear we all have in common, and it is the fear of death, the fear of death. And it's ironic because it's the one fear you can't avoid. It's the one fear that's inevitable. If you're afraid of planes, don't fly. If you're afraid of spiders, you know, don't go near them. But the ironic thing is that death is assured. I know this is an uplifting, encouraging service. Again, come back next week. It'll be much better. But fear of death, and I was thinking about that, and I was looking at this passage of Scripture, and I'd love to share with you some of King David's final words as he's on his deathbed. He's facing the inevitable. He's facing what we all must face one day, and he had some profound statements that he said on his deathbed to his son, and I'd love to read, and we'll look at it. First Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all of the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. I love that. Pastor actually did a, a message on that. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Love that promise. Jump down to verse five. Moreover, moreover you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime. 
put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Let them be among those who eat at your table, for they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather in your house today. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word that we might have direction, clarity, and hope for this life. Might we all leave here changed as a result of hearing your word. Holy Spirit, you have complete authority. Speak today in the mighty name of Jesus. We all said, amen. amen. I want to talk to you specifically about the dying words of a king. The dying words of a king. Death brings this sense of mortality to all of us. You know, we live our lives and I think we just try not to think about it. Like Savannah, I, I like to think about the future and be planned ahead. So we've had this conversation and I know this sounds dark. I'm going somewhere with it. But like, you know, if, if I die first, you know, would you ever like date again or marry? And I already told her, we have the agreement that I have to die first because I'm done with dating. It's the worst thing ever. It's horrible. Marriage is the greatest thing. I told her, I'm done, you know. And she's like, stop talking about that. I'm getting sad. So I'm like, okay, we'll change the subject. So, it, 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 But it's uncomfortable because it brings to light this sense of mortality that our days are numbered. Our days on this earth are limited and it is finite. The Bible tells us that life is but a vapor. It's a breath and then it's gone. And uh, just a couple weeks ago, we laid my grandmother to rest. She went on to be with Jesus and uh, she had been sick for a while. So it was expected and and we all got together as the family, and we got to be with her and, you know, tell her we love her and, you know, go be with Jesus, go be with your husband. And, of course, there's grief when you mourn the loss of a loved one, someone you're close to. Of course, there's sadness, but there is this sense of peace when you are, when you have the knowledge that they are with the Lord, when they're in heaven, knowing that if you have a loved one and they've passed on and they know Jesus, that right now in this moment while we're sitting here, they are in heaven where every tear is being wiped from their face, that all the former things have passed away. They're in complete perfection, no pain, no loss, no disease, no hurt. They only know the overwhelming sense of love, joy, and peace from our Savior. That is paradise, and that is what our hope is in. They would look down in this moment and be like... I hate it for you, you all. I'm good, you know. <laughs> but it just brings this sense of mortality, you know. And, and, and I was thinking about that, you know, what would my life look like when I get to my final days? What would my final words be? What would my legacy be? What would the life I leave behind look like? The good news is that when you accept Jesus and you are a believer, you only ever have to die once. That Jesus paid the ultimate price that we might not face the second death, the eternal punishment. Come on, anybody grateful for Jesus that we only have to experience death once? But the fear of death is what he removed, that, that eternal death, because of his sacrifice on the cross. And for context, David is about to pass away. He understands that he's going to be in paradise. He understands that he's going to be with the Lord. That's secure. And he's about to experience the goodness of God, complete perfection, in a way that we could never know until we once are there. But he's here in this moment, and he's not thinking of himself. He's not thinking about the eternal glory he'll step into. He's thinking about his son, Solomon. He's there thinking about his son, and he's about to pass down the kingdom to him. Solomon is about to inherit everything. He's about to have 
all authority over the kingdom. He's about to have all authority over all of the leaders, over the armies, over all of the battles that he would one day face, over all of the riches in the kingdom. He's going to inherit everything. David's just a few short breaths away from his time on earth ending. This is such a crucial moment in both David and Solomon's life. Solomon's hanging on every word that David is saying. Every word is so important because David's breaths, amount of breaths are numbered. What would David be thinking about? Everything in his life has led to this moment. He knows his time is over and everything that he experienced, what would he be thinking about? I just began to think, what would David be thinking about? Would David be thinking about his time in the field when he was a shepherd and he was caring for those little sheep? Would he be thinking about the times that he had to fight off lions and fight off bears? Would he be thinking about the time that the prophet Samuel would come and anoint him to be king? Would he think about the times that he was a delivery boy to his brothers on the battlefield and how he ultimately ended up killing Goliath? Would he think about fighting battles and winning wars and defeating tens of thousands of enemy soldiers? Would he think about that? Would he think about his regrets maybe in life? Would he get to the end of his life and be so consumed with his regrets, his failures, the adultery, the plot to commit murder, being disobedient towards God? What would David be thinking about in these final moments? If it were me, and I only had a few breaths left, you know, if I was surrounded by my loved ones, I'd say, you know, I love you. I hope you know I'm proud of you. I hope you do great things. I hope you're better than I ever was. I hope you can learn from my mistakes. I don't know what I would say, what I would do. But David, in this moment, we find says three very distinct, very key statements that he thinks are the utmost important. It's not just for his son, but it's for this ruler of Israel. He thinks that this is the most important thing for Solomon to grasp, for these three statements. So what I'd like to do is I'd love to go through these statements with you today, very briefly, and hopefully we can all take these dying words of King David to heart. Number one, he says, keep the charge of the Lord your God. Keep the charge, keep the statutes, keep the commandments. Number one, be obedient. He looks at his son, he says, be obedient. There's other translations you can read. And it simply says, do what God says. Do what God says. I love that simple truth. Keep his statutes. Keep his commandments. Because what's the promise that's attached? You can read on. So that you will prosper in all you do. Walk in obedience with him. I think there's a lot of people, we hear the word on a Sunday morning, we read it, and we hear it, right? But we have to be careful not to deceive ourselves by just hearing, but be doers of the word. I think there's a lot of people, we hear that stuff and we say, well, you know what? I know the Bible says that about that specific topic, but I choose not to believe that or, or vocalize that because I don't want to offend people or step on toes. And no, 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 no. So I'm just going to be neutral. Well, can I tell you, neutrality is picking a side. We're either unashamed of the gospel or we're not. We're either unashamed that it's the only way to heaven, it's the only truth, there's no other religion, or we're not. We're either unashamed or we're not. Neutrality is picking a side. So David's drawing some of his final breaths, and this is so crucial. He says, son, I need you to listen to me. I need you to be obedient to the Lord. I need you to follow his statutes, follow his commandments, live them out, because you've got to look at your life as a believer through the lens of both grace and truth. If you read this book, you're going to find both grace and truth, and there's a lot of people who love the grace side of Jesus, 
They love the God loves me. His grace is sufficient. Oh, I love those verses. Those are great. God loves me. God loves me. So it's okay if I go out on the weekends and go to the bars. It's okay. God loves me. God loves me. It's okay if I sleep around a little bit. I'll get married eventually. God loves me. It's okay if I know I forgive everybody, but there's just that one person, you know, and I'm still working on that. God loves me. It's okay. It's okay if I'm a little offended. I don't like all that preacher in that church. And <laughs> so I can talk like this. Pastor ain't here. <laughs> Sorry, pastor. <laughs> you guys will have a new next-gen pastor next week. I'm kidding. <laughs> bitterness, the unforgiveness, that addiction. It's okay because God loves me. Well, well, grace is not a license to sin. I love my wife. I love my wife and she loves me. It's an unconditional love. She doesn't have to do anything to earn my love. I love her, right? Like if, if you're married in here, you love your spouse. Don't look at them. It's true. It's okay. <laughs> right? You do, right? I love my wife. So shouldn't it be okay if I go out and cheat that she should take me back and love me? Well, why not? She loves me. Surely there should be grace. Surely there should be love. Or could it be that there's both grace and truth? Because how come we treat the Lord like that sometimes? I know God loves me. God's graceful. But I'm not going to change this specific area of my life. But you've got to understand there's both grace and truth. Grace is not a license to sin. God is full of grace, but he is also full of truth. And there is a promise attached that when you are obedient, there is blessing attached. But God can only bless the steps of those that are obedient. Psalms tells us, blessed. Someone say, blessed. Blessed Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners. Jump down to verse 3. Whatever. Someone say, whatever. Whatever Whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever. But verse 6. The way of the ungodly shall what? Perish. There is blessing. Of course, you can live however you want, and God's grace is sufficient for you. But God only blesses the way of the godly, the obedient. Blessed is the one who walks in obedience, who does not listen to the counsel of the ungodly. You know why so many people fail in life? They miss this first instruction David gave. They simply lack obedience. And it's not much more complex than we try to make it out to be sometimes. It's the simple truth of coming back to, are you obeying his statutes? Are you obeying his commandments? Is this book a suggestion book, a little encourager, great for captions on Facebook, but not actual application in life? Or is this the only way, the only guide to life? This book is still true and good. But we like to cherry pick commandments. But I say, I would never kill anybody. Sometimes I feel that way, you know, like... I would never kill anybody, but it's totally okay to gossip about them and tear them down with words because Jesus says you've murdered them in your heart. I would never steal. I'm not a thief. I'd never break into someone's house or a store and steal, but I would rob God of the tithe. I'm preaching. Here we go. But what David is saying is, listen, I've experienced a lot in life. He's saying I've done a lot. I've done a lot of great things, and I've done so many things that I'm not proud of that I regret. And son, I need you to learn from my mistakes. I had to learn by being disobedient, by committing adultery. 
I had to learn, and there was consequences attached to that. And son, if you can hear my voice and be obedient and keep his statutes and keep his commandments, not only will you avoid a lifetime of pain, hurt, suffering, and loss, but you'll step into God's blessing, God's favor, God's protection. You can't just let this commandment be a suggestion. It's got to guide your life. It's either true or it's not. We either live by it fully or not at all. But we've got to be bold about our obedience towards the Lord and his commandments. Why? Because you will prosper. Whatever you put your hand to. How many of y'all want that blessing? Whatever you put your hand to. Your family, your business, that relationship. You will prosper in Jesus' name if you are obedient. Be obedient. The next thing he says in verses 5 and 6. Moreover, you know also what Joab did to me. He shed the blood in peace. He shed the blood of war in peacetime. Therefore, do according to your wisdom. Do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. I love that. It's just graphic, gory. I'm like, but it paints it paints an intense picture of how passionately we must pursue this next point, which is number two: kill the troublemakers. Kill the troublemakers. Number one, be obedient. Number two, kill the troublemakers. The second most important thing David says to his son is, son, I need you to be obedient. Follow God. Follow his commands. Listen to his word. Live by it. Don't just hear it. Actually do it. But now I want you to remember what Joab did. Remember how he sought blood when there was a time of peace. Remember what he did. Remember how the enemy works. I want you to remember that and don't let him go to the grave in peace. Kill him. Kill him. What David is saying here, I want you to remember the killers of peace. I want you to remember the stone-cold robbers of peace, the enemy, the troublemakers. When there was peace, when there was love, when there was agreement, there was somebody who went out looking for trouble. When there was unity, somebody sought division. When there was peace, somebody sought war. And not only was he just out for blood, the Bible says that Joab took the blood of his enemies, put it on his waist, and then put it on his sandals. Wherever Joab walked, there was a trail of blood. There was a trail of destruction. There was a trail of division. And in the same way that David charged Solomon, you need to kill the troublemakers. You need to cut off the troublemakers. There are people... There are habits, there are mindsets in your life that if you do not cut off, if you do not cut them off in your life, you will lose peace in your life and there will be trouble in your life. Are there areas in your own life that need to be taken out? Areas in your own life, mindsets, attitudes that need to be killed? Are there divisive spirits, troublemaking spirits or mentalities, behaviors that steal the peace and go out looking for trouble? Because division and offense are troublemakers in times of peace. When there's great unity, how many of y'all know there's great things that can be accomplished? God even looked down at the Tower of Babel when they were unified, all speaking the same language, saying the same things. God said that nothing would be impossible for them. So what did he do? He had to come down and confuse their language, split them up, because even the Lord and the devil both know when there's division, nothing can get done. But when there's unity around one common goal, Come on, the body of Christ now more than ever, we need to be unified around the same goal. We're here to preach Jesus and to seek and save those that are lost. That's the bottom line. 
But he's saying you need to identify these areas of your life that would cause division when there's unity. Identify the attitudes, the addictions, the behaviors, the relationships that they just cause trouble. You need to cut them off and kill those attitudes. Because if you don't, everywhere you go in life, there'll be a trail of destruction. Everywhere you go in life, there'll just be a trail of calamity, of malice, of division, of a lack of peace. That blood will be on your shoes. If you don't kill the troublemakers in your life, eventually they'll kill you. If you don't kill those troublemakers, eventually they'll kill you. David was well aware that if Solomon did not seek out Joab, that Joab would eventually kill him. He knew that he had to take out the troublemakers. You gotta understand, this is, this is David's final moments. He doesn't have many breaths left. And it's so important to him that he understands this concept. You've got to kill the troublemakers. Eventually, they'll kill you. Maybe not literally, but it might be the death of dreams. I see so many young people. Again, we work with hundreds. This past Wednesday, we had over five, 600 young people here at church on a Wednesday night. And I love that because... That's the Lord. That's this generation being so hungry and so passionate for the word of God and for being in God's house. And I see all the time young people in their 20s just broken, just tears streaming down. Just a couple weeks ago, I had a young man just tears streaming down his face. And he's like, man, I just blew it. I've wasted four years of my life just getting high, getting drunk, sleeping around. And he's like, I didn't know where else to turn to. So I love it that people know that if you've got nowhere else to turn to, the best place you can turn to is the house of God and the Lord. I love that. But we can save so many people from so many years of heartache if we just understand that you've got to get rid of the troublemakers. You've got to get rid of that offense, that unforgiveness, that addiction, that habit. You've got to break that off. But it's not just enough to identify it and kill it. Jesus says it's not enough, because even in Matthew 12, Jesus tells us that when you get rid of an unclean spirit, it's like leaving a house that you've swept clean. That spirit will go out into the dry places in the wilderness and will try to find rest. It will not find any. And what that evil spirit will do is it will gather seven other spirits to come back to that house. And if they've found it still empty, they'll make that their new home. And the state of that person will be far worse than it originally was. Because I've met far too many people. They're very good at identifying the bad habits, mindsets, relationships. They're very good at finding it. They're very good at getting rid of them. But they're not so good about replacing that void. You've got to find it. You've got to kill it. And then you've got to fill it. It's not enough to just try to muscle your way through. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to go back to that relationship until your life is filled with the power of God, until you get that fresh anointing from the Holy Spirit, until this word and your prayer life and being in his house is your number one priority. You will find yourself still struggling. You've got to find it. Find those troublemakers. Kill the troublemakers and fill that void in your life with only the thing, with the only thing that can bring true repentance, a true change, and that is the power of God. It's time we stop allowing the enemy to take peace from our lives, to take peace from our families, to take peace and joy from our families. The enemy does not have the final say. God has equipped us with everything we need to live peace with peace in our lives, in our families, in our relationships. We don't have to live with division. God's called us to be unified, so let's find the troublemakers. Find it. Kill it and fill it. And lastly, one of David's final statements to Solomon. 
but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai. Let them be among those who eat at your table. It's such a profound point. You know, again, you got to think the, the image here is David's on his deathbed, doesn't have much time. Every word he speaks is one breath closer to his last. He'd have to choose his words very carefully. There's no, son, I love you, I'm so proud of you. There's, you, don't, you won't find any of that. This final statement he says to his son is be kind. Show kindness, be kind. Be obedient, kill the troublemakers, and be kind. And for me, I read that and I was like, maybe I'm missing something because my first reaction was that doesn't really seem very impactful. You know, even when I was putting this together, I was like, that, I don't know, it doesn't really feel very practical. But when you don't agree with scripture, our job is not to submit to our feelings, but to ask the Lord, hey, what am I missing here? So God, show me something here. So I, I began reading it more and praying about it and show kindness. I mean, how many people just don't practice kindness? Y'all ever been in the parking lot on Sunday morning? <laughs> oh, yeah, we see the, we see it. <laughs> God bless you, brother. You too. Right back at you. <laughs> the parking team's out there like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you too. Okay. <laughs> Kindness. Before he would pass away, this final statement, this charge to his son, son, be obedient. Follow the word. Don't just let this text be suggestions. Let it change you from the inside out because there's blessing in obedience. Son, you need to find the troublemakers in your life. You need to find them and you need to kill them. Do not let the enemy have a foothold in your life. And lastly, be kind. Show kindness. The world is so void of kindness. And I began looking at just that word and reading about it more. And Galatians tells us that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know why. Like, I never really thought about kindness. When I think of the fruits of the Spirit, I think love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. You know, like, that's it. But I never think kindness. And if kindness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus tells us that a tree will be known by its fruit, Really, what I believe David is saying is, son, I want you to live a spirit-filled life. Son, I want you to live a spirit-led life. I want you to live a life that's so filled with the power of God that the fruits are just overflowing in your life, that people would look at you and see love, that people would look at you and feel peace. People would look at you and know that there was faithfulness and goodness and that there would be kindness evident in your life. How will you know if the Holy Spirit is alive and working in your life? The fruit will be evident. Tree is known by its fruit. Is there kindness in your life? That's a question I ask myself. Would people look at me and say you were kind? Probably not. I'm an eight on the Enneagram personality. We're not a kind breed, you know. And I just felt so challenged that even I would initially read that word and think less of it. And I felt for me, no, I've got to live a kind life, a spirit-filled life. Lord, help me be kind. Lord, help me be loving to other people. Lord, help me be gentle and humble. Because you can only display what you take in. 
So are you feeding the Spirit? Is the only time you hear a message for an hour on Sundays or on Wednesdays? Or are you feeding it daily? Is it your daily bread? Because if you're not in his word, not in church, not serving, not giving, not living a life of generosity, can I tell you, the fruit will be evident in your life. And likewise, if you are, the fruit will be evident in your life. You'll be seen with kindness and joy. There's just something about when you walk in at Seven Hills and those greeters on the door, they got their face smiling. They're happy. There's coffee for you. The kids workers. What is it? Could it just be that people have caught what David was trying to say? That if you want to live a great life, it's got to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That kindness doesn't just happen when you feel like being kind. No, it's a choice you make in spite of what circumstances look like. Hey, my life is going crazy and I got no reason to, but you know what? God is still good. God is still holy. Like David is saying, if you miss this, we can miss out on what God can do in our life. There's a lot of advice we can take, counsel that we can take from people, but a lot of times you have to ask yourself, what's the fruit of their life? You know, if you want what someone has, do what they do. Say what they say. And a lot, you have to be so careful because people will get on social media and there's all these articles and story posts and they're designed to incite a reaction usually because they're coming from somebody that they themselves are bitter, are offended, and they're trying to rile people up to a reaction. So you have to ask yourself, before you listen to counsel, what's the fruit of their life? Because if you want what someone has, simply do what they do. And David's talking to his son Solomon saying, look, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I want you to learn from the mistakes. You don't have to face the same pain and consequences that I did in his entire life. A man after God's own heart would share these three profound statements before he would go on to be with the Lord that he thought were of the utmost importance. Be obedient. Be obedient to this word. Follow what it says. Do what it says. Live a lifestyle where you don't allow trouble a foothold. You don't allow offense, bitterness, unforgiveness, addiction, unhealthy mindsets, unhealthy toxic relationships to have a foothold in your life. You got to cut that off. And then lastly, be kind. Live a life filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 tells us, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And watch this. Be, what is it? Kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know what allows us to live these statements out in our lives? God's kindness towards us. God's goodness towards us. Because if I think about Jesus, Jesus was obedient, right? Even to death on a cross. He was not exempt from following God's word. So Jesus was obedient. Jesus sought out those that would cause division and troublemakers. And he made sure to call out the Pharisees and to call out those that were not living right. But if you look at Jesus' life, he was kind. Even in the wilderness, who was he led by? He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. So he himself was submitted to the leadership of the voice of the Holy Spirit. And you saw kindness everywhere he went. What did Jesus ever do but love people? What did Jesus ever do but heal people and provide hope, provide second, third, fourth, fifth chances? What did he ever do but show kindness? The reason we can live by David's final words ultimately is because of Jesus' final words dying words of another king. When Jesus hung on that cross, the way a person would 
die ultimately on a cross was by suffocation. Their nails would be pierced on the sides of the cross, their feet together pierced through. And in order to catch a breath, you'd be hanging. A person would have to pull themselves up by the wounds, by the nails, would have to pull themselves up, push up off their feet just to, to catch one breath. And Jesus is hanging on the cross. His back split open from beatings and being whipped and tortured. Would from his nail-pierced hands have to pull himself up, drag his back up that splintered cross to catch a breath. Would cry out in Luke, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Every breath that Jesus would take was agony. Every breath he took caused so much pain that he would have to choose his words very carefully. He would have to muster up all of his strength to pull himself up the cross to say what he thought was most important communicating. He'd pull himself up. God, forgive them. Still thinking about us with his dying words. He'd pull himself back up a second time, right? Because he had sinners, one on his left, one on his right, one forgiving, one repentant, one not. Jesus would pull himself up to draw a breath, say, surely you're going to be with me in paradise today. Still, even breaths away from giving up his own life, he's thinking of us. He's still, still got the same goal to save some. And lastly, he would pull himself up on the cross. It is finished. What would be finished? What would be finished? It's, it's the fact that you and I would never have to face ultimate death. Not death on this earth, but Jesus died so that we would not have to have the fear of life after this earth. He died so that we could have full access, full assurance, knowing that we could one day be made right again with God. That ever since the Garden of Eden, God has been orchestrating this plan when man chose disobedience, when man let the troublemakers in, when man chose to accuse instead of being kind. From that moment on, our relationship was tarnished, but God had orchestrated everything from that moment that he would one day send his son, Jesus Christ, that he would so love us that Jesus would be sent to die on a cross to be the sacrifice for our sin so that whosoever should believe shall not perish, not perish on this earth, perish eternally and that we might have everlasting life. Jesus died for us. The least we could do is live for him. If you enjoyed today's message, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you want to experience daily content, messages, and inspiration, go ahead and sign up for Daily Bread with PM by visiting sevenhillschurch.tv slash dbpm. Thanks for listening to the Seven Hills Church Podcast.